Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have all of these folks here with me today as well. Hi, Brian. Hi, Brad. Philip. Hi, Brad. Bob. Good morning. Dustin. I'm Brad. And we've got Debbie Lyons Blythe with us, who is the current chair of the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and a local rancher. Hi, Debbie. Hi, happy to be here. So we're going to talk about, because of Debbie's role in both ranching and sustainability, we're going to talk a little bit about sustainability. We're also going to talk about bulls. How long should we keep those bulls before we sell them? And then we're going to talk about some of the other enterprises she has going on on her ranch. Before we get into those topics, I, w- I wanted to ask you guys. So I was around Dodge City a couple weeks ago. They're building a huge new cheese plant there. So it is going to be incredible. You look at all the dirt that's broken all the size of that plant it's going to be outstanding but i wanted to ask you guys if you had only one cheese that you can have for the rest of your life which cheese would it be dustin uh that's a good question <laughs> you know a couple of my favorite like fresh mozzarella so. you, you only get one so you don't have to well okay or the the huda the huda i guess it's called huda gouda it's not gouda it's if you if you've not been to the netherlands no i have I not it, I, <laughs> I think it's hoda is what the way they pronounce it over there yeah bob uh i you know i like i like cheese but i'm gonna go with cheddar just because okay. yeah i like cheddar Oh. Yeah, I, I have not sampled many cheeses outside of the U.S. or Walmart. <laughs> and so uh, probably like Colby Jack, right? I like, although I didn't know it was called, I like the Huda. Um, but I get, I like the Ghost Pepper Jack. They have a oh. super spicy, like it a lot. And actually, coincidentally, that plant that's going in, I practiced about 30 miles from there. So I've had their ice cream. It's really good. Really good ice cream. Debbie? Uh, so I'm a huge macaroni and cheese connoisseur, and I have to then say sharp cheddar. Sharp mm. cheddar. Yes. Excellent. Nobody selected the American slices. So, with the, I don't <laughs> know what you guys are going to have on your burgers, yeah, well, but I'm set. What are you going to have? American slice wrapped in right. cellophane, as plain Jane as you can get. Awesome. So that's perfect for burgers. I know. It's not I, even called cheese. I know. You guys are thinking <laughs> highly sophisticated and cultured. Yeah, you're right. Palette. So <laughs> palette. Refined. A refined palate. Thanks, Dustin. Yeah, we'll have a cheese taste off sometime. We'll see. One of the things that we wanted to talk about, we, we were talking the other week about bulls. Managing bulls, we come through the winter. And one of the questions that has come up is commercial cow-calf operation. I've got a bull. I bought him when he was long yearling. He's been on the ranch for five years, six and a half years old, seven years old. Do I keep him? Do I get rid of him? How do I make that decision of how long should I keep this bull on my ranch? What are some of the rules of thumb you go by? So um, as someone who sells mostly yearlings or two-year-olds to people, I my, my first recommendation is that they need to be semen checked yearly, right? And so that's a, a huge determination whether that bull gets kept for another year. But then the next question is, are you breeding him back? Are you keeping heifers and are you breeding him back to his daughters? So those are the two fundamental bottom line for me. Plus, I guess, too, feet and legs, right? Are they still getting around well and able to breed cows? Yeah, absolutely. Bob? Yeah, I think some of the things that uh, Debbie said are exactly what I think about. When actually NOMS, USDA NOMS, did a survey of, of why bulls are cold. And honestly, a fertility, feet and legs, and breeding back, or, you know, a smaller herd where they're, they're saved daughters and then... The, trying to avoid that. Those are really common reasons that bulls are cold. And it's not so much how long I keep him in that six and a half years of age, he should still be very fertile. He should still be in the middle peak of his life and and should last a little bit longer. But things like feet and legs and other problems are more likely to occur. They're a big animal, athletic, 
going across rough country and those kinds of things. So it's not unusual for them to have problems. I'm going to answer it is it's not so much how much I keep them past six and a half, but I really want to purchase and evaluate and maintain my bulls so that they last that long. I really hate to spend the money for a new young yearling bull and then get one or two breeding seasons out of them. It's not so much that I need more than five breeding seasons, but I sure need five. But why would, why would you sell him if he's doing okay now? I mean, well, so I, yes, he has more, but I want to make this decision. Yeah. Spring calving herd, I want to make okay. the decision in the fall because if I'm going to sell him in the spring, I, just wanted, I would just soon not feed him for the winter. I just wanted to answer a different question than what you asked. Yeah. yeah. So, But I, I, think, I think that's a question you ask when you buy the bull, not every year. And some of these things you can't predict, right? Fertility sometimes goes bad. Sometimes you have an injury that goes bad. But and I I think typically like smaller cow calf producers that buy a bull and what Debbie said about you know if you're keeping those heifers back does the size of your herd match like if you have 20 cows and you're buying a bull but you're keeping heifers because you have an older herd a cow herd five years may be a really really long time without starting to see some inbreeding so it, I think it's almost like when you purchase that bull my plan is five years or six years, or seven years, and do I have enough cows in my herd to support that strategy? At which, least that the other I things mean, you can't control. The, the spot you outlined, the herd you outlined, may not have enough cows to necessarily keep heifers either. I mean, I know we do sometimes, but if I keep that bull, in which case, I'm, let's say I'm not saving heifers, take that out of the equation, is there an age limit at which I just say, yep, no more? Because he's got to pass his BSE each year. He's got to be sound, feet and legs. Can I just, like the old pickup, can I keep it around until it stops working? Well, you want to keep him to where he was going to fail, sell him six months before that. Yeah, that's what I'm asking you. How do I know when six months before <laughs> that is? Well, I think you do the best you can, basically, by focusing on the things that you can evaluate. So feet and legs, soundness, overall health, ability to maintain body condition, and uh, semen quality. Those are the things that I can measure. And as long as he's doing pretty well, I'll, I'll probably keep him. Now, at some point, you're right, I get, and I'm pausing and I'm slowing down because he gets to seven. Well, that's going to be less and less likely with each coming year. But I'm really evaluating the bull himself. And if he's in excellent shape, then, yeah, why get rid of him? How about this question, too, though? Is he throwing good calves, right? So we haven't even discussed, are you getting a really good weight on your calves at weaning time or or whatever the expectation is, you need to reevaluate that as well. Well, I was going to mention that, I mean, if you got a multi-sire pasture, you know, it may be hard to tell, but what's his libido? I mean, how much is he chasing cows during the breeding season? Or is he just, he's still reproductively sound, but from a physical perspective, but he just doesn't care as much. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how easily we could measure that or even monitor that, but we did some research a few years ago, and in multi-sire pastures, the majority of calves were often sired by one bull. Even when we had three, four, five sires in the pasture, you'd have 60% from a bull, and then you'd have some bulls which contributed zero. The problem was we can't pick that up on a BSE. We can't pick that up on any other way. So I, I think some of the points you guys reiterated annually, I'm going to assess him right before, and we talked about BSE, but right before the breeding season, I'm going to assess feet and legs, make sure he's sound. But at this time of year, I'm essentially, and what I'm interpreting what you're saying, Bob, is I'm playing the odds. Is he getting old enough that I don't think he's going to make it through another year? I'm trying to sell him six months before he goes bad. 
but it's a guessing game and the odds are in my favor early in his life, they start to decrease as we get past that five, six, seven. I think the other thing we need to think about is we're talking about the risk of a bull that we know, but there's a risk of buying a new bull that these things won't work out either too. So I, th- I think you have to, you have to balance that out too, that I have, I have something known versus the unknown. I like old pickups. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. The known versus yeah. the unknown. And, and Debbie's point is also the calves and how they're performing. So you brought up the heifers, but the calves that I'm keeping, are they doing what I expect them to do? Because in many times commercial herd, I don't know the pedigree of my cows. I can often sort that out on a bull and I can see how well that bull works with my herd. So it helps me pick out the next bull, maybe even a little bit better. So you guys are okay with keeping them until they're five, six, seven, as long as things are going. And then after that, you've got some risks. I would agree with that. I think that's a good way to summarize it. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about sustainability. And, and Debbie, we've had you on before, and you you and I have been at several of these meetings. And now Philip has also been to several of the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. is a great organization that spans producers across all aspects and even goes into packers and retailers and people who sell beef to consumers. And the goal of the whole organization is how do we make beef sustainable? How do we talk about it? How do we share that message? And how do we make sure that we're not a segmented industry with one section doing this and one section doing this, right? Fair summary of the goal? Excellent summary. So what we're what we're trying to do with this organization is try to figure out, okay, now we've had some of these conversations cross sections of the industry. And then just recently, some of those overarching goals of sustainability have come out. I know Philip has worked a lot in this area too, but maybe just give us your view of what are some of those goals and how would they apply to some of our listeners? So the roundtable, since we're made up of all of those different sectors that are memberships, we have specifically created some overarching goals that actually hit all of those different sectors. So if we're going to measure animal welfare, we're going to measure that at the farm and ranch level, at the feed yard level, at the auction market level, and then even at the packer level, right? And we also expect that those further down the chain then also will have support for those of us who are dealing with the live animals. So we have six key indicators and each of those has an overarching goal, water, land, greenhouse gases, worker safety. I'm not going to pop them all out. I'm going to expect you to help me fill up animal welfare, (laughs) well-being and human well-being. And then efficiency and yield. Yeah. Right. So um, each one of those has an overarching goal, but then there are targets uh, under each sector. Since we're mostly talking about producers or talking to producers here today, the key question for land, water, and air and greenhouse gases is, do you have a grazing management plan? The key that I think is really important to communicate to farmers and ranchers as well as feed yard operators is that these are actually best management practices. Right, so I was surprised to find that a lot of people don't have a grazing management plan. We do, but it's part of our transition plan. My 27-year-old, oh, wait a minute, he's 28. My 28-year-old son is our ranch manager. And I don't know if you guys have tried to tell a 28-year-old boy how to do something. (laughs) I was hoping it'd be better by 28. (laughs) Yeah, that's supposedly when they get their brain back, right? But so we have a written grazing management plan, not just to know what we're doing with our plan in our grass, but also to communicate to him. But if you do, you are sequestering carbon. We are pulling it out of the air and keeping it in the soil when you've got grass. Yeah. And I think that's the, one of the key things is not only is there 
an overarching goal. There's actually something you can do, but the something you can do is not so prescriptive that it's not like the USRSB, the US Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, is saying you must use this grazing management plan. It is saying you should have a grazing management plan because those are different around the country. I know, Philip, with some of the research you've done and even some of your travels, vastly different in how we want to manage those grasslands if we're talking about native warm season pasture versus cool season grass in different areas of the country. Yeah, and those grazing management plans can look very different because of those different environments, ecosystems, what our goals are overall, the inputs that go into those systems or not into non-inputs uh, into those systems and so it needs to be flexible and i mean i think the goal is for a grazing management plan is to increase the productivity of the grass or the forage on your property which has great economic benefits but then it also has environmental benefits absolutely and dustin i know some of the stuff you've you've looked at the burden or the cost of some of the animal disease on the industry in general what impact do things like that have on overall sustainability well i mean if you animals get sick they die already got all the expenses put in them and you can't generate any revenue that's probably from an economic sustainability that's probably not gonna be good both economic and environmental right because all the resources that we put into all the carbon that we saved anything we sequestered anything we put into those animals if they don't make it through animal health plays a big role in lack of sustainability so debbie what what are some of the things if i want to try to implement some of these things on my ranch where can i go for resources what should i start where should i start because you listed off a lot of information and sometimes when i hear that i just hear yeah that's a lot i'll do that another day but if i wanted to start today where where would i go so some really simple things that every farmer or rancher can do would number one be to start a grazing management plan and start documenting, right? Get get some pictures, get some information about what you've been doing for your grazing, um, what kind of, whether you rotate or whatever. E- each operation is different, but document is the key. The other thing is get BQA certified because there's only one certification ability that we have as farmers and ranchers to show animal welfare. So BQA certification is one of our, also one of our goals to prove. So my point is to people, is that if they can start documenting that, when there is a program that will show certification for sustainability, those are going to be two key points of that. Just following up on that. So uh, if I'm a producer, you just said start documenting. Is there a document or a template that says these are the things you need to be documenting? Great question. So go to the usrsb.org. It's a website that will then have basic information. If you go to the resources tab, the top of the resources tab actually has uh, modules that are outreach modules that will get you involved in what is sustainability. And then there's a toolkit with each module. If you were to select the ones on grazing management plans, that toolkit will then have examples of what grazing management plans can look like and places you can go, people you can talk to to get them put together. Absolutely. And I think most people would think that's a good idea to have a grazing management plan, but many of us don't write it down. And I would say start simple, right? It doesn't have to be complex. You can just write down, I turn the cows in on this day to this pasture and keep a very simple log. So sometimes we 
overcomplicate. Same thing on cow records. We see this frequently. You get excited, you start really keeping in-depth stuff, and all of a sudden it falls apart later. So I think that's a, a great point. We'll put links to those websites in the in the show notes. One of the other areas of sustainability that you mentioned is we, we talked about economic sustainability. And sometimes economic sustainability for the ranch goes beyond just the cattle and revenue associated with the cattle. Sometimes there's other operations come on. And I know your ranch has its own story because you wanted to bring, you talked about transition plans. You want to bring your kids home. Some of the things that go along with that mean we have to have enough revenue to keep everybody employed. How did you guys handle that? Yeah. So each one of our kids, if they choose to come home to the ranch, has to also have a side gig. Right? They have, have to have something that will help to facilitate their own cash flow situation. So our oldest son, Trenton, has um, attended K-State, and he graduated in the Wildlife and Outdoor Enterprise Management major, which teaches kids not, not wildlife and parks, but how to have their own hunting operation. And they actually come out with a minor in finance. So it's pretty awesome. He has started a uh, pheasant outfitting service on the ranch. He leases land from us and he manages everything uh, day to day. But then during this season, which is a really busy ranch season, he is uh, also running hunts on the weekends. Well, he mentioned, just kind of casually mentioned it, Debbie, that if somebody's thinking about adding, we'll, we'll let's stick with hunting because I think that's a pretty simple example. Like if somebody's thinking about adding hunting to their ranching operation, you mentioned just like I said, casually the time challenge, right? So I think a lot of people think and our family farm, we've added hunting as a side operation and it's kind of grown organically, but it's still very simplistic. What are some of the, what are some of the other challenges beyond just time that your family or your son has encountered in adding this to, to your operation? Yeah. So there's an awful lot to think about. And I just have to put a plug in again for that, uh, that major here at K-State because they've really helped Trent to just know all of the things that are important and and understand all of the things that are wrapped up in that. There's an awful lot of legalities, but you know, it's a busy time of year right now and he's running hunts every weekend. So he can only schedule hunts on the times that we have backup help to take care of cattle because we have freshly weaned calves now, right? That need extra attention. Um, So he, he can't be absent uh, running hunts if we don't have somebody to follow up with. The other thing is he's raising birds. This year he raised 5,000 birds. And those baby chicks, uh, as day-old chicks, are delivered in May and June. So that's also a time that we're doing hay. Uh, lots of things are happening at that time. So we need to make sure that we have somebody who can follow up with all of uh, the, the ranch chores. And Trent is in charge of making sure that that happens. But it, it's not an easy quite quite as easy as it seems but we're committed and um it's been a great opportunity for trent to really do some things on his own and um also works very well with with the cattle ranch before trent went this route did you guys have hunting side operation on your facility or because i think that's what happens in most situations right it's not somebody that's majored in that area but somebody that says i'll just you know a neighbor wants to hunt so i'll let the neighbor hunt and then maybe it gets either the ranch gets bigger or the opportunity gets bigger and it has kind of this organic growth to it. So I'm wondering, and maybe this isn't for you necessarily, Debbie, but are there other resources other than having kid that comes back with that major available to ranchers? Do you know? 
So I do think uh, the first thing I would do is talk to the Department of Wildlife and Parks and, and see some of the legalities that are involved, especially if you're raising the birds, there are legalities, but there's also important if you're going to do a deer hunt, you've got to figure out the licensing situation and, and all of that. So I think that's probably the place that I would recommend they start. But then also talk to the advisor up here for wild, for the, um, the major, WOM major, because I think they're very willing to help out and give advice and the extension service as well. Yeah, I think there's several schools around the country that offer similar majors and talk to them, talk to your wildlife folks. I like the advice of don't go to jail because you did it wrong, right? So that's probably good to stick with. But then I think this is an opportunity that as you expand and grow different areas of the business, and it may not be just in this area because there's sometimes, and I know I've talked to some folks that have have gone through one career and then gone back to the ranch and said they're doing agro-tourism, right? So they're talking about how do I bring people from outside to the ranch? And that's actually beneficial to the whole industry. I know you guys have had some experience with some of those folks. What do you, what do you see or what are some of the advantages of bringing people from outside ag maybe onto an operation? Well, number one, it brings money, right, to your local community. I assume maybe there's hunts, hunters that are staying somewhere nearby at a hotel. So you got that. Uh, restaurants, you know, gas stations. You know, when I was going hunting way in northwest Colorado, forgot to take my boots with me. So guess what? I had to go buy a new pair of boots at the farm store. And so there's a lot of money that's probably being infused into the local economies would be one thing. Yeah, and it's a different business than what we typically deal with. We're thinking of commodities and costs and everything that we're putting onto our operation as an investment for a return when people are going hunting or doing other things this is a hobby and it's a different it's a different attitude towards spending money than when we go to the feed store and you're and you're actually buying feed that you're going to put in cattle to go back the other direction and remember as you grow you're probably going to be able to hire an employee so right now we have one employee or he has one employee that it helps him out uh, part-time but if when he builds his lodge and has uh, hotel rooms for people, yeah, I'm not planning to change the sheets and, and feed them continuously. So we're probably going to hire somebody to help us with those kind of things. That just adds to your community. Oh, absolutely. It adds to the community and adds to the experience. So you have to think about, you have to want to be the host in that scenario, right? Or be the host if you're having somebody tour. And if that's not what you want to do, then maybe not start down that pathway. And like you said, Brian, lots of folks have tossed around some of these ideas. And sometimes they fit well, sometimes they don't. You mentioned the labor alignment, depending on where you are and, and when you're calving, it could be that because cow-calf labor is not the same throughout the year, right? It's really high sometimes and really low other times. If it happens to coincide with my agro-tourism, doesn't fill in those gaps, and it just makes me twice as busy when I was already really busy, not helpful for the operation. So, Debbie, we appreciate you spending some time with us and, and joining us again today. We're always happy to have you on. If anybody has any questions, thoughts, or comments, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm -hmm.